Well, who is Jesus Christ? If you were to just put that question out there to the world, you'd get back many different answers. To the Mormons, Jesus is a being created by God. He's the spirit brother of Lucifer, who is not begotten of the Holy Spirit nor virgin born. He did die on the cross, but only to cleanse us from most of our sins. Repeated adultery and murder are exceptions. To Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus was God's first and supreme creation. Originally, he was Michael the archangel, but became a man. And he rose from the dead, not in the flesh, but as a spirit. To Jews, Jesus is not God. Definitely not the long-awaited Messiah, but just a man. And to some, a prophet. And to Muslims, Jesus is not divine, nor the Son of God, but just a man. Nor did he die on a cross or rise from the dead. But he was still a great prophet, second only to Muhammad. So again, who is Jesus Christ? There's no shortage of opinions, but to where do we to go to learn the truth? The only trustworthy source on the matter is not man's opinions, but God's word. As we learned last time in our study of the Trinity, according to scripture, Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, who later took on human flesh and dwelt amongst us and So what makes the study of Christ so remarkable is its uniqueness. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. He's God the Son and the Son of God. He's the Messiah and our Savior. This evening, we're continuing on in a little Bible study series we're calling Basic Bible Doctrine. And for this third lesson, we come to, it's called the Doctrine of Christ or Christology. And for us Christians, especially those who are here, we follow Christ what else would you want to study? Well, what else is really better to study than this? We long to be with Christ in heaven. We long to be like him on earth. And so for that, we need to get to know him and we should want to. We, the church, are his bride. And so wouldn't you want to get to know the one to whom you are betrothed? At the same time, the doctrine of Christ always has been and always will be under attack until the end, until Satan is done away with The enemy will never let the truth of Christ's person and work go unassailed. He will find ways to undermine it in each age, and our own age is no different. While nothing is new under the sun, things keep coming up, it's still good to to go over them. And so what we're going to learn this evening about the doctrine of Christ may not be brand new per se in the past 2,000 years of church history. Nevertheless, we need to always be, each generation, anchored in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done according to the scriptures. And that's our goal tonight. We're going to do our best to survey the whole doctrine of Christ in one evening. And it's, it's actually a pretty tall order. But our aim with this study is just to give believers the basics on Christ, who he is and what he has done. We'll actually divide this study into three ways, considering with our time the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and then the life of Christ. So lots to squeeze in here, but that's our aim. We want to better behold and get to know our Savior. What is the doctrine of Christ? Now, a good place to start is with the deity of Christ. We need to just jump right into it because there's a lot of, lot of ground to cover. But today, especially, the deity of Christ is what separates biblical Christianity from all other religions. You know, apart from Catholicism, no one else affirms the deity of Christ. Was Jesus really God? And surely most Bible-believing Christians would say yes, but when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and and you start a conversation, many quickly realize just how poorly equipped they are to support that 
from the scriptures. But there are several lines of evidence from the Bible that clearly portray Jesus as God. I'm going to give you a sampling of those here. And again, a key word on the sampling. If you want in-depth, if you want exhaustive, years ago I taught a Sunday evening series on just the deity of Christ. I think it was probably like five months, just the deity of Christ. Really uh, beat it into the ground. But we're going to condense all that into about 20 minutes. So here's a sampling. Seriously, I could easily overwhelm you with just biblical data. But I think the most helpful takeaway for you would be to remember that the five lines of evidence that show and support the deity of Christ in Scripture. Now be found in first is DNA, meaning his deeds, names, and attributes. Remember that, the DNA of Christ, his deeds, his names, his attributes. You add to that the claims he made and the worship he received and a very watertight case of his deity in Scripture. You look at the testimony of Scripture, we're going to find that Jesus performed divine deeds, were, uh, works that were exclusive to a deity. He uh, was ascribed various divine names and titles, which belong to God alone. And he's found to possess divine attributes, attributes that are exclusive to the divine nature. Jesus possessed those as well. You add to that his claims of being divine and the fact that he received all sorts of worship as God. And like I said, you have a, a rock-solid biblical case. Jesus was God. So let's briefly explore those five points. First, you know, Jesus performed divine deeds. And there's a long list that we don't really have time to cover, but I'll just mention them. Miracle worker, savior, life giver, truth giver, spirit giver, judge, intercessor, you study those works one by one like we did in that other Sunday evening study. You find these, these are works that explicitly were said to be divine. That these are works that only God performs. But now they're in the hands of Jesus. Maybe if we could pick on just a few, I think the greatest example would be his work as creator and sustainer of the universe. And no doubt that's a work of deity. The scriptures several times attribute the work of creation to the Son of God. I mean, the whole triune God participated in the work of creation. And we learn that the Father decreed creation. It appears that the Son was the agent who actually carried it out and, and created. John 1, 3. All things came into being through him, Christ. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Speaking of Christ, it says, it says For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him he holds all things together. So he's not just the creator, he's also the sustainer holding together all of creation. Hebrews 1.3 adds, the Christ is the radiance of of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. That's a divine work if you're looking for one. He upholds all things by the word of his power. There really is no other work that sets God apart as God, like the work of creation and then sustaining all things. And calling matter into being and sustaining it pretty clearly marks deity. And well, that's Jesus. If you can tack on one more divine work here real quick, you might throw in forgiveness. 
the work of forgiving sins. Because scripture very clearly attests that only God has the power, right, and authority to actually forgive sins. Which really makes sense because in the ultimate sense, our sin is really only against God in the first place. He's the true offended party. Only he has the authority and the right to actually forgive. But Jesus comes on the scene and he bears that power and right and authorities forgiving sins. Like, you know, Mark 2, 5 through 7. sees the faith of the paralytic. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In a sense, they had the right response, the right instinct. It's true. Only God can forgive sins. It's a divine prerogative. But they just missed the obvious fact that Jesus is God in the flesh. He forgives sins because he is the Savior. All right, second point. Jesus had divine names. We're thinking about the deity of Christ and, and the five strands of evidence for it from the Scripture. Secondly, Jesus had divine names. There are many names and titles Attributed to him that were divine, such as Lord and Yahweh, the great I am, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of Man. Again, you go through those one by one, you see these are divine names and titles. But for our sampling, I think the best one to cover is just the the title God. Was Jesus ever actually called God in the scriptures? People wonder that all the time. And it's a fair question. You would think he would be. You would hope he would be. And, well, the answer is yes, several times. Those who claim otherwise just reveal their their ignorance of the scriptures. A few verses. In the Old Testament, the promised Messiah, Isaiah 9-6, was said to be called Mighty God. You know, John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Later in that same passage, verse 18 of John 1, listen to this. It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. See how someone is being called God who is next to the Father. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he's explained him. This is the incarnate word being called God. You know, John twenty twenty eight, where Thomas confesses to Jesus, the risen Lord, my Lord and my God. Titus 2.13 says we're looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the Greek, both of those terms are referring to Jesus, God and Savior. And related to the title God is the title Son of God. The Jews of Christ's day fully understood that the title Son of God was a divine title, which is why when Jesus took it, they wanted to stone him. Like John 5.18 says the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. In John nineteen seven, the Jews answered him. They said, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Again, in a sense, their instinct, their response was right. That would be blasphemy if Jesus were not truly God. Uh, Of course, they missed the boat on that one. They failed to recognize Jesus had the right to these divine names and titles because he was divine. Third, Jesus possessed divine attributes. Looking at his DNA, his deeds, his names, his attributes, they all bear witness to his divine nature. And he possessed divine attributes. When Jesus took on a human nature in the incarnation, 
He did not lose his divine attributes. He set aside their use for a time, and he lived as a man. But these divine attributes were not lost. They're simply veiled. And several times throughout Scripture, that veil is lifted, and we see Christ's divine nature revealed. You can see and study his omnipresence, his omniscience, his immutability, glory, holiness, righteousness, justice, love. All divine attributes at God's level are attributed to Christ. We can, for our example here, pick on omnipotence or his power. As the creator, he had complete and total power over creation for example, Matthew eight twenty six and 27, he's rebuking the sea. He's calming the storm. They say, who is this man? Even the winds and the sea obey him. He has total authority over creation, but even at a deeper level, he has total authority over life and existence. John 10, 17 and 18, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Let's think about that. The authority to bring yourself back to life, to take up your life, to resurrect. That's otherworldly. That's a divine power. And Jesus had the power that only God possesses. And we saw that with him being creator. But if we could add another attribute in a sampling that showcases deity, One that's not communicable to man would be his eternality. In a sense, God made humans and angels to be eternal, meaning going forward, we had a beginning in time and space, but now we will live eternally, either with God or away from God. So in a sense, we're eternal beings, but none of us go back to eternity past. We're not truly eternal in that sense. But Jesus is. He had no beginning. He's eternally God. John makes this point again. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that, it was just God, and and God the Son was there as well, along with God the Spirit. Jesus alludes to this. John 8, 58, He said to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. clear reference to his eternality. We'll come back to that verse later, actually. And then Revelation twenty two thirteen, ending the Bible, pretty much near the end of the Bible, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know what's great about that verse, Revelation twenty two thirteen, where he says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's at the beginning of the book of Revelation. So Revelation is bookended by these two statements, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The catch is at the beginning, it's God the Father speaking. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. At the end of the book, Jesus is now saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. Which is it? Well, they're co-eternal. The answer is yes, both. This is just the triune God speaking. We could go on, but already the DNA of Jesus says a lot about his deity. The more you peer into each of those, you see divine deeds, names, and attributes say a lot. Let's Sweeten the pot and add his divine claims. Jesus made divine claims. It would be one thing if Jesus vehemently denied he was ever God. Or if he never claimed to be God. But that's not the case. Several times he made clear claims or assertions to be 
the Son of God and God the Son, such that those around him knew precisely what he was claiming. Again, that verse, uh, John 8, 57 through 59, the Jews said to him, you're, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus here is very clearly tying himself to Yahweh God with this play on words. Because back in Exodus 3.14, every Jew knew this, which is why they picked up stones. This was the name of God. That the covenant name of God, Yahweh, was, came from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be or I am. God himself revealed himself as just the God who is. I am who I am. He's just the self-existent God before Abraham was born. And Jesus is saying, that's me. He didn't say before Abraham was born, I was around. He purposely says, I am. Linking himself to the God of their fathers, being co-eternal with God. He's claiming to be Yahweh incarnate in this passage. And that's why the Jews wanted to kill him for saying this. They understood he was making himself out to be God. It goes on in John 10, 30 through 33, where Jesus says, I and the, and the Father am one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, you know, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And they understood the claims he was making with the things he was saying. He was claiming to be God. Well, we'll finish up when it comes to the deity of Christ with number five. Jesus received divine worship. Jesus received divine worship. And this last line of evidence is a big one that's often overlooked. But it may be one of the strongest evidences of Christ's deity. Because every Jew would say without a doubt that Yahweh alone is to be worshipped. It's part of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship an idol. God continues to reiterate throughout the Old Testament. He alone is to be worshipped because he alone is worthy. And God absolutely refuses to share his glory or praise with another. Like Isaiah 42, 8. Where God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And Christians would agree. There's only one God, and God alone is worthy of worship. And this explains why both humans and angels are to refuse worship. Acts 10, Acts 11, Cornelius the Gentile, he tries to worship Peter. But Peter stands him up and says, no, don't do that. I'm just a man. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is so overcome by even the glory of the messenger angel revealing all these things to him that, that John falls down to worship. The angel stands him up. He says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. Revelation 22, 9. We could go on, but it's very clear in Scripture, only God is to be worshipped. The thing is, time and time again, we see Jesus being worshipped, receiving worship and honor, and praise, and glory. And he doesn't stop people. He never stands people up. He does not reject worship. He accepts it and encourages it. That makes Jesus either a blasphemer and a false prophet, or it makes him God. But what makes the case 
for Jesus being God all that much stronger is we find God the Father sharing his praise and glory with God the Son. Something he said he doesn't do, which he doesn't. He will not share his glory with, with another, but, but with the nature of the triune God, they co-equally share this glory together. Jesus references that in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 5, where he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. A powerful passage, John 17, 5. Also, Revelation 1, 17. This is John talking about Jesus. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Unlike the angel at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, get up. I'm just a man, or I'm just the highest angel, or I'm just a created being. Worship God alone. He doesn't say that. He leaves John on the floor and just tells him, don't be afraid, because he's with him. But you get the point. He accepts this act of worship. Likewise, John 20, 28, Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, after the resurrection, Jesus doesn't say, no, no, don't say that. Worship God alone. He accepts the worship. Hebrews 1, 6 says that when God, again, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. God is directing all of the angels to worship him. And then there's Revelation 5, 12 through 14. Pictures the throne room of God where they're praising the lamb on his throne. And they say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Four living, living creatures kept saying amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. This is so significant because in Revelation 4, you, you only see God the Father on his throne. But here in chapter 5, the Lamb shows up on his throne. The two of them are together, and now they're, they're both being praised equally side by side. All creation is now praising the Lamb in the same way, with the same language, they're praising the Father. And they do so in the Father's presence. And that, that's cosmic idolatry unless the Son is divine as well. But that he is. And there are other forms of worship Jesus receives. The worship that's given to God, Jesus receives in the same manner. Like prayer, praise, honor, fear, love, obedience, faith, and glory. None of which we have time to study right now. But you can go get like a five-month study to fill that gap. But time will stop us here with this sampling. We're, we're going to move on. But the scriptures are neither, neither silent nor weak when it comes to the identity of Christ and that he is God. The implications to this are many, but you know, obviously top of the list is to, to worship him and that he is worthy of your worship. Your right to pray to him and to trust him and to count on him. Saints and angels are not omniscient. They can't even hear your prayers. And they're not omnipotent. They don't have power to do anything about your prayers. Only God does. These are divine works. Jesus can do both. You can go to him in prayer. He's your great high priest. Take him at his word. Everything he said, he can perform. He can make good on all his promises to forgive 
and to save. And being fully divine, you can rest assured his atonement was sufficient. His blood was enough to pay for all of your sins. No created being could bear the eternal wrath of God on the cross for us. Any created being would need to suffer eternally to suffer God's infinite wrath. Jesus could pay it all, being the Son of God. So go ahead, bow down to him in your hearts, and let that the praise of his name come from your lips and your lives. Is how we respond to God in Christ. Moving on to our second section here we want to cover in the doctrine of Christ is the humanity of Christ. We need to talk about his deity. When we're going to study the doctrine of Christ, now we also need to talk about his humanity because he was both. Most people today, it seems like in the church, they don't need to be convinced of the humanity of Christ. It's not under attack that much. In fact, for many people, their problem is that they believe Jesus was only a man. But in the first couple centuries of the church, it was actually the opposite. It was taken for granted Jesus was God, but under attack was his humanity. He was not actually a man. If the Gnostic heresy and and Docetism, which claimed his humanity was just an illusion. He didn't have a true human nature. Now, even though this type of thinking is not that prevalent today, it's still very important for us to understand from Scripture, Jesus was fully man as well. And since the church today spends more time and energy on his deity, it can lead us to really neglect his humanity. We don't want to do that. People can unwittingly think of Jesus as not really human at all because we we focus on his deity so much. We need to avoid the pitfalls on both sides of the road. So we want to study now the humanity of Jesus from Scripture. And just like the deity of Christ, there's several lines of evidence that show this to be true, that he was fully human. Jesus was a full man. He came and bore true humanity. How do we know this? Well, first, Jesus displayed a human appearance. Jesus displayed a human appearance. Whenever people saw Jesus on earth before the resurrection, he appeared like an ordinary man. And that's, in fact, what made it hard for some people uh, to receive him as the divine man because he appeared just like a man before the resurrection. He was more than a man, but he was not less. Matthew 13, 54 and 55 says he came to his hometown. He began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And that text shows it's his hometown. They all knew him. It shows for those 30 years before his ministry began, he, he just appeared as a man. And surely they thought him odd because he was sinless. They probably didn't like him very much because of that. But nonetheless, his appearance, his habits, the things he did at a job, you know, he appeared like a man. Secondly, Jesus possessed human attributes. When it comes to the divine being, there's a list of attributes that belong to deity. Same thing goes for humanity. There's a list of attributes that belong to humanity. You could say the same for the animal kingdom, but for humans, we have human attributes. And Jesus possessed the full range of human attributes because he had a fully human nature and body. A sample of those would be fast. Don't even really try and write these down. But Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, we see him showing hunger. Matthew eight twenty four, he's tired. He's sleeping. 
John 4, 6 through 7, he's tired, he's thirsty. John eleven thirty five, he's weeping, he's showing emotion. Matthew 9, 36, he shows compassion. Mark 1, 35, spiritual dependence on the Father. Hebrews 2, 18, temptation. Matthew 26, 38, anguish. Isaiah 53, in plenty of places, suffering and pain. And even 1 Corinthians 15, 3, bodily death. And you could add to that, but he, he clearly displayed uh, the full gamut of human attributes, physically and, and just as a human. Third here, Jesus underwent human development and advancement. He underwent human development, meaning he grew up. Christ's divine nature was uncreated and doesn't need to grow. The divine nature doesn't grow or shrink. The same is not true of his human nature. Part of being a human is growing. His human nature was created in time and space. It had to enter the world through childbirth, through Mary. And the child Jesus, as he was living as a human, had to learn and grow. He had to learn the alphabet. He had to learn addition. Just like all humans do. It was the Father's will for Jesus to live on earth as a human, veiling his deity. Didn't lose any attribute, but he was living under the power of his human nature. And so we should expect Jesus to learn and grow, and Scripture affirms that. Luke 2.40. Speaking of the child Jesus, it says the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Luke 2.52 says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And these texts just show some of Christ's mental, uh, physical, social development. He's learning the word. He's showing wisdom. Never an error, but he was growing in his use of the word and wisdom. And he's, as he was physically growing. And then number four here, Jesus received human attestation. He re- received a human attestation. The inspired authors of scripture attested or bore witness to the fact that Jesus was a true man. The writers of the New Testament several times affirmed he was truly a man. Acts 2.22, Peter preaches that first sermon. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, signs, which God performed through him, just as you yourselves know. And then he goes on to to preach about Jesus. But he affirms he, he was a man attested by God. He's more than a man, but not less. 1 Timothy 2.5 adds, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and the man Christ Jesus. We need a man to be a mediator between us and God. But we need God to be a sufficient mediator. We get the God-man. And of course, 1 John 1, 1 through 3, longer passage, you can read it yourself, but the Apostle John testifies of, of this divine word made flesh, what they saw with their eyes, they touched with their hands, they beheld him that this word was truly made flesh. So the writers of scripture leave no room for doubt that Jesus was fully man. The only difference between his humanity and ours is that Jesus possessed a perfect, unfallen human nature, like that of Adam before the fall. It was unstained by sin. And unlike Adam, though, he kept his human nature unstained by sin. Though tempted, he never sinned. He retained a perfect human nature. And that was part of the mission, which we'll see later. But Hebrews 4.15, 
It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When you think about the humanity of Jesus, it should also evoke worship. It is not right for us to worship a man. But Jesus is the God-man. Being man, though, with his humanity, we find in Jesus both our perfect mediator and example. I mean, he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. He overcame by walking by the Spirit. He's given us that same Spirit that we too might follow him in holiness. We need to do this. We are meant to follow his lead and be like him and live like him. He's that perfect man leading the way for all humanity. And speaking of Jesus as our perfect mediator, we are reminded that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Just as his deity was required for the sufficiency of his atoning work, so was his humanity. This book of Hebrews testifies. He had to be made like man to be a substitute sacrifice for man. He didn't come to help the angels. He came to help the sons of of man and sons of Abraham. And for that, he had to be made like one of them. But that he did. And giving us fully reason to trust him and count in him as our perfect savior. Now, he really is the only mediator between God and man. You don't need to go to a priest. You don't need anyone else to access God. You just need Christ. Go to Christ alone. And because of his perfect life and perfect work, we can approach God even in boldness. Again, you don't need a prophet. You don't need a priest. You don't need a king. You can go to God directly through Christ. Draw near to the throne of grace and confidence where we're enabled to find help in a time of need. We should be going to Christ, our mediator, always. He can hear us. Being God, he can uh, sympathize with us being man. He is the God-man. So we have in Jesus fully God and fully man. How they come together, we'll get a little taste of that as we look at the third part of this study, and that's the life of Christ. We're condensing a lot with the doctrine of Christ, but this is just an introduction. It's a basic Bible doctrine series. So we sample the deity of Christ. We sample the humanity of Christ. Both of those concern his person. When we study the doctrine of Christ, it's really the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So we've gotten a a good intro to the person of Christ, who he was, fully God, fully man. Now when it comes to his work, what did he do? Well, we'll get a little intro here with the life of Christ. Now, you need to understand that most of Christ's works really pertain to uh, the doctrine of salvation and the, the topic of redemption. And we'll cover that in a later lesson. So we're not going to go deep into his atoning work because that's the doctrine of salvation. We'll get there pretty soon. But what I want to do is just really trace the stages of Christ's life and explain what he did during each stage. You know, you think about the life of Jesus. Our culture loves following the lives of celebrities. There's a massive industry of tabloids, TV shows, paparazzi built around the obsession with celebrity. But Christians today should have that level of of obsession with Christ. Who else would we rather obsess over? Than, than Christ. He's our God. He's our Savior. Believers should have a great interest in D 
deepening their understanding of both who he is and what he has done. So you should take an interest in the life of Christ and with a sense of urgency and excitement. If you pick up the wrong tabloid on Christ, so to speak, it can lead to a lot of danger and harm. Getting Jesus wrong means getting the gospel wrong. So we want to make sure we get Jesus right. That includes understanding his life, his work. And so let's look at the life of Christ along three stages. The first stage would be his pre-incarnate glory. Pre-incarnate glory. When talking about the life of Christ, we're not starting at Bethlehem. Bethlehem marks the beginning of the God-man, but not the beginning of the second member of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, being God, is eternal. He's always existed. He had no beginning, but if you want to see the first stage of his existence, if you can even call it that, we'll just call it the pre-incarnate glory before the beginning of this world. Once again, John 1, 1 through verse 3. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And we know the whole triune God existed in perfect harmony and glory before creation. That included God the Son. We already mentioned that one passage, John 17, 5, where Jesus says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Get a little tiniest of windows there into the fellowship of the Father and the Son before the world was, before creation, Father, Son, and Spirit were existing perfectly together. So that's another reference to his pre-incarnate glory. The time before he came to earth and added to himself a human nature. Now we already pointed out the son's work in creation, creating the world. But he had another job to do per the father's will. And he needed to come to earth per the father's plan to seek and save that which was lost. To do that involved a second stage in his life. We call that his humiliation, the stage of his humiliation. The dictionary definition of humiliation is to be reduced to a lower position, to be reduced to a lower position. And that pretty much fits his earthly sojourn perfectly. This period of Christ's humiliation, it began with the incarnation and it ended with, with his death. Right, so that the period we will call his humiliation began with the incarnation when he came to earth and it ended with his death. Let's talk about those two things, incarnation and death. Incarnation. That word literally means in flesh. We use the term to describe the act whereby the second member of the Trinity took on an additional human nature through the virgin birth. That God the Son added to himself a human nature. And the result was that Jesus was not only fully divine, but also truly human. You have two natures together in one person. Key to the idea of the incarnation is the fact that God came down and took on a human nature. And it's important to understand that Jesus Christ is now one person with two natures. He's not two persons. The technical term 
used in theology to describe or talk about how the human nature and the divine nature come together in the one person is the hypostatic union. Not going to be on the test. Don't worry about it. But if you're here, if you want to remember it, the hypostatic union. And as these two natures come together, the human nature remains fully human. The divine nature remains fully divine. Neither nature is diminished. Also, the human nature and the divine nature, they don't blend together to create some hybrid form. They're distinct yet inseparable. And this is why you see in the Gospels, they present Jesus as being simultaneously human and divine. That's why we see him in one second sleeping, the next second rebuking the storm. In one second weeping, the next second raising the dead. Now in church history, the best statement that that really describes this incarnation is found in the Chalcedonian Creed. And it says this. It says, quote, We then teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, indivisible, inseparable. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. End quote. Just to further clarify a little bit, when Jesus became a man, he did not stop being God. He did not lose his deity or his divine nature. Nor did he lose a single divine attribute. Many wonder, like, okay, so what happened? Although there's no conflict between Christ's two natures, during the incarnation, Jesus gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He gave up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. That pre-incarnate glory was veiled temporarily behind human flesh that he might truly live as a man like one of us, to be our substitute sacrifice per God's plan. And so later in John 1, John 1, 14, it says that word, that eternally existing word, the word that was God, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh. You also have the key passage of the, of the incarnation, Philippians 2, 6 through 8 also known as the Kenosis passage, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, says about Christ who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That phrase, he emptied himself, in Philippians 2.7, it's referred to as the kenosis from the Greek word. People wonder what that means. This emptying was not a loss of deity or divine attributes, but it was an emptying of status or privilege. Hence the translation, he made himself of no reputation. The best way to understand the sense of what it means for Jesus to empty himself is just by understanding the two participles that come next, which modify and explain what it means for him to empty himself. Jesus emptied himself, first, taking the form of a bondservant, and second, 
being made in the likeness of men. This emptying had a lot more to do with what he took on than what he lost. These phrases modified emptied and indicate Jesus did not empty himself of power or deity, but position. The point is that Jesus was willing to take on the position of a slave and even die on the cross. You have to note the juxtaposition of these phrases, the form of God in verse 6 and the form of a slave in verse 7. Jesus did not lose his deity, but it was veiled behind a human form. His glory was veiled, but not surrendered. He didn't give up any attributes, but he took on the form of a slave and died on the cross. This was a change in role or status, not attributes or nature. And so putting it all together, the best way to understand this emptying was not a subtraction, but an addition. He was adding to himself a divine uh, human nature. And for that to happen, he had to empty himself of his heavenly position for a time. His emptying was a loss of prestige or status, and it was achieved by the addition of a new human nature. That's a key passage that always comes up in the incarnation. And you want more on that, go download our sermon on Philippians 2. Uh, I believe it's 5 through 11. So you can get a little bit more on that one with the sermon online. But the whole incarnation had a purpose. This was the beginning of his humiliation. Even uh, coming to earth was the beginning of his, of his stage of humiliation. But had an end goal in mind, a purpose in mind, and that was his death. And so let's talk about the end point of his humiliation, his death. Like I said, we'll spend a lot more time studying the death of Christ when we get to the atonement. But obviously his death was part of his humiliation. Not only did he take on a human nature, but in great humility, he subjected himself to death, a humiliating death per the Father's will. Christ's death was voluntary. He willingly laid down his life to redeem man. His life was not taken from him. Christ's death was undeserved. And contrary to all other humans, the wages of sin is death. He never sinned. He's the only one who actually didn't deserve death. However, Christ's death was also victorious. Though unjust and undeserved, through death and through resurrection, he conquered death itself. Death came alive after the fall. And Satan, the chief minister of death, both of them were conquered. Their power was conquered on the cross. Now Hebrews two fourteen and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And once again, Revelation 1, 17, we'll add verse 18. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. He's the author of life uh, itself. There's a lot more. That needs to be said about the atoning work of Christ's death. His death is the the climax of salvation. We're going to have to save it for the doctrine of salvation. Soteriology. It's coming up several more weeks, so stick around. It's not the final word on the death of Christ.
we'll return to it. But for now, I trust you know as we're surveying the life of Christ, I trust you know that his death was not the end of the story. Because now we come to the third period in what you might call the life of Christ. Pre-incarnate glory, humiliation. The third stage we call the exaltation. The stage or the time of his exaltation. The good news of the gospel is not only that he died for our sins, but that he didn't stay dead. That he rose. He victorious. And so consequently, you should no longer think of Jesus right now in this moment in a state of humiliation. He's not the baby in the manger, and he's not the man on the cross right now. He's exalted, the exalted risen Lord in heaven. And after Jesus rose, he was different. Something changed. He was exalted. And so the third and final stage of Christ's life is known as the exaltation because Jesus regained his pre-incarnate status, and he will forevermore be in this exalted state. However, even though he's exalted, he's still in an incarnate form. In some sense, he's still the God-man. Scripture indicates, as far as revealed, he does not shed his human nature. He remains in this God-man nature with us, the people of God, forever. This state of exaltation begins with the resurrection. So first, the resurrection. That marked the end of his humiliation and the beginning of his exaltation. The low point of his humiliation was when he was put in the tomb, seemingly signifying his failure. And if Jesus had stayed in the grave, his teachings would have been false. His claims would have been phony. His promises would have been empty. But that all changed when he rose. The resurrection marked total victory. It authenticated and proved. It verified every claim he made, proven true. It it proved him as the son of God. And also the resurrection guarantees the future resurrection of believers to salvation and unbelievers to judgment. Again, we'll contemplate more the significance of the resurrection when we study salvation. But you should know right now that that belief in Jesus as risen is at the heart of the gospel. It is a non-negotiable. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. There you go. First importance, death, burial, resurrection. Same with Romans ten nine. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, it's a belief that's essential. You must believe in the risen Lord to be saved. But his exaltation didn't end there. We go next to his ascension. His ascension. Whereas Christ's humiliation involved giving up his status in heaven, naturally his exaltation involved regaining that status and then some. On many occasions, Jesus spoke of returning to the Father. And after instructing his disciples for 40 days following his resurrection, that's what he did. He ascended. He left the earthly realm. He ascended to the heavenly realm. This ascension was a departure. As he ascended, he wasn't just like leaving planet earth. He was leaving the physical realm. At some point, he wasn't just making a spatial change, but a spiritual change. It's not like he went up and he's hiding behind the moon or he's somewhere in outer space. He left the physical realm and entered, re-entered the spiritual realm. 
realm of heaven. And uh, he also left behind his humiliation, although retaining his incarnate status. And just as the ascension was a departure from earth, so it was also a reception into heaven. The scorn he found on earth was immediately replaced, uh, replaced rather, by praise uh, of the heavenly host. The angels resumed their song of worship. But the song of praise that they sang before the incarnation was changed. It's different now. They added a few stanzas because now he's the lamb who was slain and then risen. Revelation 5, 9. In this reception, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the father. The concept of the right hand symbolizes power, rule, authority, and influence in the Bible. The right hand, though, is not a place of rest. Jesus is still active, actively working, serving, doing at the right hand of the father right now. He's still ministering to believers in his exalted status right now. His work of atonement is finished, but he's still working, doing other things. Like First John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He intercedes for us. He's our advocate right now. And also John 14, 2 through 3, Jesus said what he would be doing when he ascended. He said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So what he's doing right now, part of what he's doing, preparing a place for God's people, and the full number comes in, he will return and bring us there. He's preparing for that day when he will return to save the last remnant of his people and to judge the nations. And that leads to, lastly, his return and reign, that the last stage of his exaltation, really before the eternal state, is his return and reign. Return and reign. Apart from the eternal state, the final aspect of his work is his return. We commonly refer to it as the second coming. The timing of the return is unknown. Past couple thousand years of church history, there's been a at least 63 major predictions of when Jesus would return. They've all been wrong. We still don't know. But we do know that when he returns, it will not be in humiliation, but exaltation. He's not coming back to die again, but to judge. Likewise, the topic of Christ's return is so massive, it has its own branch of theology known as eschatology, doctrine of last things. We'll save that for our last study. A lot more to learn about what is to come, including Christ's return and what happens thereafter. So we'll save that for our final study. But in short, this will happen. Philippians 2, we read about his humiliation. He took on the form of a, of a slave and even went to the cross. He's not going to stay that way. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us what happens next. It says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And in response to a study like this, I can only pray that you, you come to see Jesus for who he is and what he has done and that you bow your knee to him now. You don't wait for judgment. You bow the knee to him now in love and adoration, confessing he is the risen Savior. And as you do so, as you get to know him more, as you, as you think on his person and his work, like we've done tonight, just in, in introductory form, but still, I pray your response is, is to exalt him even further in your heart, that he comes to, to take up more and more space in your heart as the, the chief end of life, to live as Christ, to die as gain. He's the purpose of life itself, that you behold that more and more. Grow in, steadily in your devotion to this Lord. Like we learned this morning, it's only those who truly see him for who he is and what he has done that can rightly follow him and now even live like him as we are called to. And so we pray like, like Paul does in 2 Corinthians eleven three that your minds would not be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what we need, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So we all seek to grow in the knowledge of the Lord and the love of the Lord. That's our aim. Let's seal that with a little word of prayer and finish up. God, that's our desire, and we pray you help consecrate it in our lives this evening, that as we study the doctrine of Christ, yes, we need it to fill our minds. We need to be equipped with the truth of who Jesus is, what he has done according to your scriptures. But let that truth travel down to our hearts and, uh, and uh, impact our affections, that we come to know this Jesus, believe in him, submit to him, and follow him. May we love the Savior who first loved us and live like he lived. We thank you for this this a salvation we find in Christ. He is our all in all, our King of kings, our Lord of lords. May we confess him and know him, enjoy him, and, and share him with others. Uh, bless us as we seek to make much of Christ with all of our days here and into eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.